Join me every month for the inspiration to find your finish line. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Find Your Finish Line. We're presented by Activice, the official topical pain relief partner of Ironman. Great cooling pain relief, Activice. You got to check it out. You can pick it up at Amazon, at Walmart, and Ironman.com. This podcast is not only about you being able to find your finish line at a race or an event, but we have to find those finish lines every day in life. And I talk to guests from all walks of life who have overcome many hurdles to get to their finish lines. And the guest today has probably crossed more finish lines than almost anybody I know. He is Dave McGilvery. Hello, Dave. Hello, Mike. Good to be with you, man. <laughs> Always good to be with you. Dave is, uh, the resume is long. First off, he's a great father and a great husband. He's uh, been with the Boston Marathon since 1988 as the technical race director and then the race director. Uh, DMSE, his company, puts on races like the Falmouth Road Race, uh, Beach to Beacon. This guy's run across the country. He's done numerous Ironmans. And this year, on April 18th, he is going to run his 50th consecutive Boston Marathon. Dave, when I when I say that, does that seem almost unreal? I'm just going to keep doing it until I win it. I mean, that's what I told everyone, <laughs> but uh, looks like I'm going to be doing it for a long time. It does, Michael. Um, you know, when I did my first one in 1972, um, not proud of this, but at the time I was 17 and you had to be 18 years old to officially register. The entry fee was $2.00 to register wow. for, for the race. But knowing I was 17 and not 18, I didn't register. Uh, they would have refused my entry. So I <laughs> jumped in and ran it anyways, and I didn't finish. And so I vowed to come back the next year, and I was able to officially register as an 18-year-old and finish the race and vowed on that day in 1973 that I was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life as long as God willing, I could do it. And 50 years later, here we are. And and, and we're going to talk about that because you are a self-proclaimed running streak freak. <laughs> that is, I love that. But let's go back to those Boston years when all of a sudden you'd run, I think, 14 or 15, Dave. Then they asked you to be a part of the event. They asked you to be the technical race director. And you had this trepidation like, my gosh, what a great career move. But I don't want to stop running. Take us, take us through that, how that all transpired. Well, it, it, it did all start <clears throat> with my first one. And I remember I had called my grandfather who lived near the race course. And I said, I'm going to go run that race in Boston. They say, oh, they call that the Boston Marathon. I said, oh, well, that's a good name for it. I'm going to run it. And I so remember years before that, especially 1973, when Ron Hill won, set a course record of 210 and change in the pouring rain. And I turned to my dad and I said, someday, dad, I want to I want to run that race. And I just get up the morning of Patriots Day on 72 and said, I'm going for it. And um, my grandfather said he'd meet me at Coolidge Corner. And I said, where's that? He goes, 24 miles. And he could walk to that location. Well, my brother drove me to the start and I took off and I got to about 20 miles and down I went in the hills in Newton. And I got taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance. And I called my parents and said, can you come pick me up? And they picked me up, drove me home. I called my grandfather. There's no answer. I called him again. There's no answer. Finally, nine o'clock at night, he answers the phone. I said, Grandpa, where have you been? He goes, where have you been? He goes, the old man Kelly goes by, the street sweepers go by, no Dave. And I said, I um, I failed. He said, you what? I said, I quit. He goes, nah, you didn't quit. I said, what I do? He said, you learned. I said, great, what I learned. He he said, you learned that you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. It's, it's good to set goals, but you have to earn the right to do them. And I said, okay, I, I understand. He says, I'll cut another deal with you. He said, what? I said, he said, you train for this for next year and I'll be there waiting for you. And I said, OK, deal. Well, two months later, he died a heart attack yeah. on a bus 
And I said, I got to do this for grandpa. So I trained like the Dickens. I registered for the race. I was 18 years old. And in those days, I was running like the Bill Rogers and Alberto Salazar's of the world. We were doing 120, 130 miles a week. <laughs> I was ready to go. And the day before I got sick, my parents said, you can't run. And I said, I have to run the newspapers to say, and Dave running in memory of grandfather. And they said, you can't run. You're too mm. sick. And I said, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given me before in this? What's that? I said, a chance. I just want a chance to do this. So they said, okay, they drove me to the start. I took off. I got to five miles and I was toast. Like I, I, I was so sick and I kept going and I got to the halfway point in Wellesley, Mass. And I saw my parents on the side of the road and there's my mother and what's she doing? Mm. She's crying. Mm. Why? Because that's what mothers do. They cry because they're worried about you, right? But then there's my father and what's he doing? She's taking pictures, you know, my mother crying. <laughs> and I said, okay, keep going, keep going. I got to the point where I, dropped out the year before and I'm doing a survivor shuffle over the hills, heartbreak kill. And finally at 21.5, boom, down I go again. So I drop out of my second Boston marathon in a row. And I'm saying to myself, this wasn't meant to be, I wasn't meant to be a marathoner. And all of a sudden a defining moment happened in my life. And I turned around and I was sitting right in front of the evergreen cemetery. And that's where they buried my grandfather. And I didn't realize that it was on the marathon course because I had never got to that point before. And uh, I said, son of a gun, uh, he said he'd be here. And maybe he wasn't there physically, but he was sort of there spiritually. And I picked myself up and I finished in four and a half hours. And that's when I made the commitment to run it every year in honor and tribute of the lesson my grandfather taught me in life about earning the right to do things. And that's when I did it for 15 years in a row. Then I got offered the job to sort of help run it, run it in a different way. And I'll tell you, man, I struggled with that decision because I'm a commitment guy, right? And I did not want to give up running in the race. But I don't know, something that was an epiphany, you know, that, well, maybe, maybe I can do both. I don't know. So I directed the race, I helped direct the race during the day and I got to the finish line and I was high-fiving everyone and Mike, I just felt awful. Not not full of self-pity, but somewhat. You know, I was cheering on all the runners, but at the same time, I didn't do it. And so I tapped a police officer on the shoulder and I said, officer, do me a favor. He said, what? I said, will you drive me back to the start? He said, why? Did you forget something? I said, yeah, I forgot to run. So he drove me back to the start. I started eight o'clock at night, finished a little bit after 11 o'clock at night. And thus began my streak of running every year at night and being the last finisher for the last 34 years. And this April will be 35. Dave, did anybody, when you went back with the, with the police to the Hopkinton, did anybody know you were doing that? You were out there just virtually on your own, weren't you? No, I was on my own. I, I was on my yeah. own um, um, that first year, and then it became a tradition. And so then other people joined me, and my brother started driving a car, leapfrogging me, setting up a little water station every couple of miles. And that's how we did it for, you know, Josh Nemza, my friend who you know, he, mm -hmm. he ran with me a lot. Other people ran with me, but I never had more than like three to five people running with me. And then over the years, it grew and people who didn't qualify would call me and say, hey, can I run with you at night? You know, and I'm like, well, we have four waves in the race. I don't want to make this a fifth wave, you know, of another thousand people like it could have got out of control. And I was diplomatically trying to say, well, it's an open road. It's open to the public. You can do whatever you want. But like, you know, I wanted to tone this down a little bit. Plus, you know, it was a very personal thing, Mike. Um I didn't, I, I never really wanted to bring a lot of attention to it. It was just sort of the calm after the storm. Because once I became the race director, you know, that was a huge job, obviously. And, yeah. you know, all the quote unquote stress leading up to the race and obviously not getting a lot of rest, not training really well, not eating really well, and especially on race day. So over the years, it became harder and harder to do this at night. So, um, but hopefully, God willing, we'll be able to pluck out another one on April 18. Uh, I, I have no doubt about that. To our listeners, Dave and I go uh, go back 
quite a ways. We go back to what we call our Saucony days in the 80s when I was a rep for them on the West Coast and Dave worked with them as their ambassador and coach and we got to travel together. And Dave, you know, the, back then I knew there was something special about you and because I, I would see people being drawn to you. And I think it's because you have that innate ability to have leadership skills without trying to tell everybody that you're a leader. Uh, do you think that comes from your your grandfather, your parents? Where do you where do you think that comes from? Well, I, you know, I think it's a it's the old hard work ethic. You know, nothing nothing was handed, right? And you know, my my story is you know growing up here in Boston. You know, sports here, professional sports is is huge, as you know, Red Sox, Every, Celtics, Patriots, Bruins, and um, it's it's just all around you. And so, when I was a kid, what did I want to be when I grew up? A professional athlete, but. As most people know, when they see me, you know, I, I have a challenge myself and my challenge is I'm vertically challenged. Um, and so every time I went out for the teams, when I, my friends pick sides, you know, in the park league, it's I got Fred, I got Pete, I got Mike, I got Tom, I got Sally, I got Jane. I mean, they picked the girls over me then either. And so all right, I got Dave and I was always the last pick. And when I when I went out to high school sports, I, I was really good in baseball and basketball because I worked out every single day, but I was always the last one cut. So it was really hard to sort of overcome that. And at the ripe old age of like 15, I learned about those three types of pain. There's physical pain, which you can train really hard and overcome. There's mental pain. Similarly, you can overcome that. But the worst and the most debilitating of all three pains is emotional pain. And it's hard to train for that. You just get whacked in the side of the head um, unannounced. And that's what was happening to me. And I learned the concept of rejection at, at a young age, being rejected. And there's nothing worse than the feeling of <clears throat> not, not being needed or wanted. And, and that's how I felt as an athlete, not as a person, but as an athlete. So what did I do? I started to run because nobody can cut you from running. And so I just started setting all these personal goals. And, you know, the very first one was <clears throat> running my age on my birthday. You know, when I was 12, this is pond near where I live. And it's six miles around the morning of my birthday. I ran six miles around the pond. And then later on that night after cake and ice cream, I said, oh, I might as well go run this off and ran around it again. So I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday, and I thought that was cool. So when I turned 13, I said, well, I ran 12 on 12. I might as well run 13 on 13 and 14, 14, 15, 15. And I started that streak of running my age on my birthday every year for the last 55 years. And people look at me like, you're crazy. What are you going to do when you turn 90? And, you know, my attitude is, first of all, I want to be I want to be breathing. Um, then get out of bed and then, you know, I'll decide then. But, you know, my motto in life has always been, it's my game. So it's my rules, right? So I can change the rules anytime I want. So I always try to set goals for success, not failure. I'm realistic about what I'm about to do and I don't commit to it until I earn the right to do it. And all of that is ingrained in how I approach life and how I approach leadership and I've always felt that <clears throat> I'm no better than anyone else and none of us are better than anyone else. You know, we're all on this thing together. Um, and so and, and that's that's sort of how I live each day. Well, your your humbleness, Dave, is, is your strength. And in the mid 2000s, you wrote the book, a fantastic book called The Last Pick. And it. It's pretty revealing, and, and I knew a lot about you, but I didn't know, you know, what was going on in your life when you were 14, 15, 16, and not being picked and all that stuff. Was that, when you wrote that book, was it part of a self-healing process so you could heal some of those emotional scars? Well, I heal by giving back, Mike. Um, you know, when you give, you receive even more in return, and... I just felt that, um, you know, for me, I wanted to be a professional athlete, but it evidently wasn't meant to be. But there's always another path. 
and I took a different path. And all I was trying to do in writing the book is to, you know, I tell it when people say to me, what's your book about? I always say it's about the person reading it. You know, everyone that's reading the book is in it because you can identify. We all can identify with that same thing. None of us are always the first pick. Right. And sometimes we're the last pick and sometimes we're the no pick. And how do you process that? How do you get beyond that? And it's just a matter of, you know, will and determination and passion and all those all those attributes that sort of drive you to be able to attain your goal, even if you have to change the rules along the way. Exactly. And you've also, you've graduated to the, to the kids books of dream big and your latest one of running across America, which you did do. Uh, Are you, because, you know, my, my six-year-old grandson looked at dream big and read it. And I, I could see the look in his eyes on that, that there's stuff out there that is bigger than him, and one day he may be able to do it. That's got to be some great self-satisfaction on putting together children's books. Yeah, I literally got an email, no kidding, what? 30 minutes ago from some gentleman who said his daughter, who's five, read my book, and he showed he sent me a picture of her running, and she's running – some pathway around a park and she did it five times for a mile. And wow. he said, she's so inspired by your story. And I mean, how can you not, when you read things like that, how can you not just continue to try to instill in children in America, the whole idea of setting goals and, and not limits and, and not being afraid to, to do so. Um, so it, it comes back to me in dividends. Let's you know put, put it that way. So dream big for me. You know when I was little, I was little, but I had big dreams, and then you know I went after them. Um, running across America, you know for that one, you know it was funny because I remember I was I was in the Hancock Tower in Boston, and I was thinking about running across the country, and I looked out the window and I saw Fenway Park. And I saw a sign out in right field. The sign said, help make a dream come true, support the Jimmy Fund. I wasn't even sure what a Jimmy Fund was. So I picked up the phone. I called the Jimmy Fund. And a guy by the name of Ken Coleman answered the phone. And he was the voice of the Boston Red Sox and the executive director of the Jimmy Fund. I said, hi, Mr. Coleman. My name's Dave, and I want to run across the country for the Jimmy Fund. And after he picked himself up off the floor, he's like, okay, fine. The Red Sox will support you. The Jimmy Fund will support you. And and, you know, but what I really wanted to do was play second base at Fenway Park. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> so we cut a deal where I started ceremonially in the kingdom in Seattle during the Red Sox Seattle Mariners baseball game. And it was weird, Mike, because I was running around the kingdom and everyone was on their feet cheering and screaming. But it was I, it was like an empty kind of accolade because I hadn't done anything yet. Yeah, I made the commitment to go east, but I hadn't done it. You know, so. I flew down to Medford, Oregon, started in Medford, Oregon, ran across the country, finished in my hometown of Medford, Mass., ran the seven miles to Fenway Park. I ran into Fenway Park and got a 10-minute standing ovation. That's where I felt good because I had just run across the entire country to raise money for kids with cancer. And Runner's World said that that was the first time in 1978, the first time anyone had combined running with raising money for cancer research. That's way before team and training and live strong and all that. And that was a proud moment to read. I never realized that, you know. So I finally, when I ran into Fenway and everyone's cheering, the Red Sox, the Mariners, the Mariners were playing ironically at Fenway on that night. Um, They're all yelling and screaming and everything. And it was funny because they said, come out of the left field wall, the green monster, run around the warning track, finish at home plate, say a few words and, you know, exit the park. And okay. And I took off and I started running the crowd was screaming and screaming and screaming. And I said, this is my moment. Okay. If I can't play second base here, I'm going to run around here and I'm going to keep running and running. I kept going around and around. I thought they're going to call the police on me. Get the hook, get this guy off the field. We got a game to play. But, um, but again, those are defining moments in, 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 in your life. 
It, it's, it's amazing you didn't hit that stadium and put on running cleats or baseball cleats, you know? know. <laughs> Don't been. think I, I didn't think about it, you know? So, yeah. Uh, so. Well, you uh, it's it's funny how you talked about uh, your your grandfather and the goals and you've got to earn them and and I had this question a little bit further down and the reason I did is because you've always been that heavy goal setter where it defines your life and it defines what you're going to do uh, after your you had your bypass surgery in what 2018 that was yeah. Yeah, 2018. You know, self-admittedly, it was a real scare. Uh, but you finished Boston six months later after the surgery. Tell us what what that meant, Dave, to you and your family, and to you personally of of being able to come back from from a scare like that. Well, <clears throat> Mike, I always, you know, I. I you know, all the running, I've run about 160,000 miles. I've run 165 marathons, done the Ironman nine times. And you've welcomed me at the finish line and done run across the country a couple of times, run up the East Coast of America, done a 24-hour swim, 24-hour bike, 24-hour um, run, you know, did the World Marathon Challenge, seven marathons, seven days, seven continents, all this foolishness, right? And all these things. So you kind of get the impression that, you know, you're probably a little bit bulletproof, you know, you're pretty fit and you're, you know, you're invincible in that sense and nothing's going to go wrong. You're in shape. Yeah. You're in shape. So like what can take me down? Nothing in a sense. Right. And then I was out running one day and I could feel this difficulty in my chest and difficulty breathing and it persisted. And I just, I didn't blow it off, but I was trying to, to, find out for myself what's causing this was it the heat the cold did i tie my shoes the wrong way was it something i ate i didn't eat and did i get enough not get enough sleep what was it and nothing i couldn't put my fingers on it so i went to the hospital here in boston mass general and they did all these tests on me echocardiograms pulmonary tests stress tests ekgs everything and they all said the same thing you know there's nothing wrong with you and i said yes there is i can't breathe when i'm running and um, I said, guys, you got to give me the big boy tests, right? You got to kind of look under the hood here, and, and and you know check me out a little little tighter. And they did, and they did a CAT scan and did an angiogram. And the CAT mm-hmm. doctor walks in and he points at the monitor and he says, there, 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 there. I said, there what? He goes, there you've got severe coronary artery disease. I said, no, really, what's going on here? He goes, no, you do. I said, you must be looking at someone else's charts. He goes, no, those are yours. I said, how can that happen? <laughs> I said, there's only two ways this stuff can happen, guys. One is genetics and two is self-infliction. I, what do you think? He says, well, maybe both. And I said, okay, I can't control the genetics, but I can con- control the self-infliction. And, and I said, so, and I turned to my doctor and the first thing I said to him, I said, zip it up. He goes, what? I said, don't tell anyone. He said, why? I says, I don't want anyone to know. It's the ding in my armor. It's like, you know, no one can know yeah. this. And then it leaked out and people started finding out. And I eventually got letters and emails from people saying, hey, I heard about your illness and your diagnosis. And so I had the same symptoms. I went in. I was ignoring it, but I decided to go in and get it checked. And I walked out with three stents and, and you saved my life. I went, and then I started realizing you, you little selfish son of a gun, you know, you want to keep this all to yourself, but you could help save lives. You know, if you just expose that it can happen to anyone. And I realized that the ripe old age of 60, that just because you're fit doesn't mean you're healthy. And I, I always thought it did, you know, so I turned to my doctor too. And I said, I have a question to ask you. He said, what? I said, is this reversible? He goes, it depends. I said, depends on what? He goes, depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. I'm over here. He says, well, you and your discipline and the way you go about business, I think you can have an impact on your own illness. I said, sign me up. I went on a tear. I went on a tear. And that's when I called the Iron Man. And I said, hey, you know, I know I know you've invited me in the past, given my history. Um, and I'd love to do it again. And they go, well, we heard about you. You got to get a note from your doctor. I said, excuse me? 
You got to get a note from your doctor. I said, I've never been asked for a note from my doctor. Well, we need one. We don't want you going down in the lava fields on us. And I went, oh. so I went to my doctor and I said, Iron Man wants a note. He goes, I'm not giving you one. I said, why? He says, because I don't want this on my watch either. I said, well, I've improved over the last five, six months. You know, I'm, I'm good. I changed my diet, my nutrition. I lost 27 pounds. I, I've lowered, and I said, you know, I've lowered my cholesterol level by over a hundred points. I've done the work. I've earned the right. I want to go back to Hawaii. I need that as a magnet, as a target. I, he said, well, we're going to do another angiogram. I said, okay, go ahead. He did it. And he goes, oh my God. I said, what? He goes, you reverse your own severe coronary artery disease by over 40%. I said, okay, can I have the note? He goes, yep. He gave me the note. I went back. You announced me across the finish line. I did Ironman. And then I went and did World Marathon Challenge a couple of years later because I, I got fit. I was ready to go. I was hammering. I was training. I was in the best shape of my, in the last 20 years of my life. And I went to, you know, did the seven marathons and seven continents in seven days. And I felt pretty good doing that. No issues. But then I got home and all of a sudden I could feel this breathing problem again, which I hadn't felt in like three years. I'm like, what the heck? And then I realized you can't run away from your genetics. And I went back in and had another angiogram and he said, you got 90% blockage. I said, how'd that happen? He goes, it's just genetics. And I said, well, what are my options? He says, well, you can do nothing and live a sedentary life. I said, cross that off. He yeah, said, well, really. we could stent it, but it's really close to your heart and it could be risky. I said, I'm not taking a risk with my heart. One false move and see ya. He goes, okay. And he says, oh, we can do open heart surgery. I said, nah, I don't like that one either. He goes, well, you run out of options. I said, well, there's this little race in April, six months from now. And I've shuffled through it a couple of times. What do you think? And he he gave me the best possible answer. He didn't say, no, I don't think you can do it. Or yes, I think you can do it. He said, you know, I'd be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. I went, whoa, okay. And it gave me that four letter word that I needed at the moment. And that is hope. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead with this surgery, you know, rip me open and do a triple bypass on me. And then I got to figure out a way to delicately balance because my heart surgeon said, I've never operated on someone as fit as you. So I don't know what the recovery is going to look like. And I said, well, I surely don't. I've never been through this one before. So I said, well, let's give it a go. And, you know, so it was one of those things where did the operation. Then I was in a walker. Oh, by the way. And I, I set the record for the one mile walk in a walker around the cardiac ward. In Mass General of course Hospital. You so did. I, got, I got that record. So they of let me out four did. days later. Of course I did. They let me out four days later. And I was in the recliner and the whole bit. Katie's taking care of me and whatever. And then it's like, okay, go walk a half mile and walk a mile and walk two miles and walk jog and jog walk. And, you know, just that whole very, you know, sort of tedious recovery training concept. And I had six months to both recover and to train for a marathon. And I did. And I was able to run my 47th Boston at night after directing the race, six months after having open heart bypass surgery. You know, when people hear that story, I know when they hear that story, Dave, they go, well, it's not possible, but... When you, when you have a life that is being built from the time you're 14 years old with goals and success, uh, don't you think that has built such a strong foundation for you to be able to continue doing what you're doing? Yeah, of course. You know, because, you know, one of the reasons why I continue to do like the birthday run, even though right after my surgery, I changed the rules a little bit and I ran, instead of running... 60 whatever miles 64 miles i i ran a marathon and then biked the rest because i knew you know that i didn't want to hurt myself yeah i mean a lot of right. people on the outside look at it might think i'm a fool and i'm i'm pushing the envelope too much but i i'm not you know i i, I know my limits and everyone and, and that's the whole idea you have to understand your thresholds you know and again i think there's 
two other types of pain. There's wanting pain and challenging pain. And you have to be able to distinguish between the two. And when I was feeling my difficulty breathing and my discomfort in my chest, I knew that that was a wanting pain. That wasn't a challenge in pain. That was like, oh, see if we can bust through this. I had seven <laughs> friends of mine, Mike, who were Olympic trial caliber, 220, 222, right? And they went out for a run one day and never come home because mm-hmm. either they were in denial or I, I don't know. I don't know why they didn't know that they had a heart a problem. And, but at least I got a second chance. And the reason why I got a second chance is I forced the issue, you know, and that's my whole motto right now. My whole mission, I mean, is, is awareness in Massachusetts. They have a public safety campaign that says, if you see something, say something, right? My, my campaign is if you feel something, say something. And you and I both know we can count on two hands people like a Greg Welch and on and on the list goes without naming names of folks very close to both of us who we have found out recently have some form of heart illness, you know? So, and you know, they're monitoring it and they're taking care of it. I mean, these are Ironman winners. These are Boston marathon winners, New York city marathon winners, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And it doesn't mean you're immune. Right. And so we all got to monitor ourselves. The most important, if you live a life like this, and I don't mean this selfishly, but if you live a life saying the most important person on the planet is you, it has to be. It's almost like if you're on an airplane and, you know, they say when the oxygen mask comes down, who do you put the mask on first? You. You put it on you so you can help the person next to you, because if you're gone, you're not going to be able to help anyone. Right. So same with me. I want to take care of myself. So I'm in a better position to help us. So I don't have to burden anyone to take care of me. And I'm in a better position to help those who need my help. Right. So the awareness and the whole idea is to take care of yourself. Hold on, everyone. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. I just finished up a run and Activites, the official topical pain relief partner of Ironman, keeps me going. Don't let strain and pain keep you from your training, keep you from finding your finish line. Activites comes in three different applications, roll-on, spray, and gel. Check out all the products on Amazon.com, at Walmart, and Ironman.com, and have Activites help you find your finish line. Dave, how do you, how have you seen being the uh, father that you are? How have you seen, I know you're not the type to preach or you have to do this or you better do this or you better take this path. You lead by more of an example, but how have you seen that help lead your, your kids on their, on their direction in life? Yeah, I don't. You're right. I don't force them in any direction. Um, if they feel they want to pursue a path, they pursue the path. And everyone's different. It's funny that, you know, they kind of, they're your kids, so they sort of grew up under the same roof, but they all have their right. separate personalities and different, you know, idiosyncrasies and whatnot. They're all very, very, very different from one another. Some are really emotional, some are not as emotional, all of that. But the main thing that I, want to, and I think have done a pretty good job with my wife, Katie, and, um, and, and Sue, um, is instill the concept of goodness. They're just good kids. And that's, that means the world to me. They don't, they get all A's in school. Some of them are athletic. Some of them are driven by other things. You know, my son Ryan works for me now at DMSC Sports. My other son Max lives in LA and he's becoming a film director, producer and all of that. And my three younger kids are here at home and, you know, Luke runs like crazy and he's a really good runner and Ellie runs, but she does dance too. And Chloe, you know, everyone's, everyone's different, you know, and that's, that's what's great about it all. No one's being forced in any direction. They do what's in their heart, what they're passionate about. But as long as they're good kids, and they are. Good kids could be because of good parents. That's, that's, 
you know, it, it is amazing how actions speak louder than words. And uh, when when I see that at, at running events and triathlon events where a mom or dad's coming through the finish line and you see the kids there just going crazy for them, the first thing I think about, I go, oh my gosh, what a fantastic, positive influence on those children. You can't, you can't teach that. You can't preach that. It's, it's something they see and it's something they feel. And I think that's how you've lived your life. You know, let's talk about this streak thing. Okay. You streak freak, you know, last (laughs) March, what 14th, you decided, which blew me away. I just figured, you know, you wanted to go consecutive days across the country and down the coast and, you know, so many Boston's and yada, yada, yada. And you had never done a daily running streak. No. I mean, you wanted to see if you could go for like 365 days in this past, what was it, March 14th, a few, uh, yeah. few days ago. You, you you accomplished that. Why? Where'd that come from? <laughs> well, Where? yeah, there's the, 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 the U.S. Streak Association or the International yeah. Streak Association, whatever. And, you know, I I'm on their email list and, you know, I've always been fascinated by how these folks do that. Um, Ron Hill is the king, you know, was the king before he passed. And he was yeah. my inspiration to run the Boston Marathon. Like I said, I heard about him winning in the 1970 Boston. So that's what inspired me. And so I always followed Ron from from England and um, he had the longest streak, 50, 51, 52 years without missing a day. Um, and there was so many other people have 20 years, yeah. 30 years, 40 yeah. years. So just doing, just doing one year is, is a nothing compare comparatively, but everything you have to, everything is it, put it in perspective. I had never done it. So yeah. it, it's just something yeah. that I said, eh, you know, it's something within my, you know, bandwidth. I, let's see if I can do it without hurting myself. Everything is always preface by saying, I don't want to do it at the expense of hurting myself. You know, with all the miles I've run, the triathlons I've done, and all these running across the country things and running 40, 50 miles every single day without a day off for 80 days and all that stuff, you would think that I'd have artificial this, that, and the other thing. I'd be the bionic man type thing. (laughs) But I'm, you know, knock on wood, and I don't want to jinx myself, but lucky me, I'm good. You know, there's no knee replacements or hip hip replacements so far. Um, I'm good. So, you know, is that biomechanics? Is that genetics? Is that me just being sensitive to the onset of a of a issue and backing off? I don't know. But I said, if I'm going to run every single day and try to get a year in, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it at the expense of I have an injury and I'm gonna run right through it. And I, but I didn't have an injury, and uh, you know, I got. The 365 days, that was a week ago, but I didn't, I'm still, I'm still having to take yeah. a day off. So of course, when this of is course not, you did. You. I'm stuck, I'm stuck. You're stuck, you, you know, haven't I'm, stopped. It's going to be, it's going to grab you, you know that. It's just going to keep you. Yeah, it's going to keep you. It's going to talk to you every morning when you it. wake up. I know every, everyone that heard I did it that has a streak saying you've got to take a day. You've got to stop now. You have to because this will go on for, for the rest of your life. You know that. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I'm not, I'm not going Dave, after Ron about that. <laughs> Yeah, really. No. If you do that, then you are a bionic man. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, by the way, how have uh, the race plans been going, you know, race prep-wise, business-wise for the marathon this year? Any new developments? What's going on? No, I mean, we're, you know, so we had the 2019 business as usual, even though it was a nasty day. And then 220, you know, we canceled and did a virtual. And then 221, we came back, did not do a virtual, but did sort of a a modified version of the marathon where we right. downsized it to 20,000 people, did a rolling start and did some mitigation and sort of a lot of the extraneous activities um, <laughs> weren't conducted only because of, you know, the whole social distancing thing. And now we're right. back pretty much doing almost everything that we, we normally do, you know, so there's 30,000 people, there's four waves, 
Um, you know, everything at the start, generally speaking, there's an athlete's village again. Um, some minor changes to, to sort of, again, play it safe. But um, but no, it, it's almost like take the playbook out of the top drawer from two, 219 and, and kind of follow that again. But what's, what's a little weird is even though I've been doing this myself for like 30, 35 years, you know, in not doing it for, you know, like um, in not doing it for 30, well, not doing it for three years, it's like one of those yeah. things that, that, um, oh, Alexis speaking, in <laughs> um, not doing it for three years, it's almost like you get, it's, you get a little rusty, you know, and you go, oh, yeah. And then you can say, well, uh, the last time we did it, oh, yeah, that was three years ago, you know, so you have to kind of regroup a little bit and remember how you, did it before so you you can you know you don't make similar mistakes or you improve or you enhance you you make it a better program so but also, also yeah, you and matt you know i i can imagine because others who volunteer and help you out at the start and the finish line they've kind of got to be retrained a little bit too probably yeah all of that all of that and and, and everyone yeah. is i mean everyone has i mean it was like like October almost, I felt like October was like a, like a warm up, you know, for, for April, even though it was only six months ago. And you're going to put together two Boston marathons back to back in six months. Yep. But, but even though like, like October was interesting because it almost was like starting over because you're doing things you never did before and you don't really know whether they're going to work until it's over. Um, but at the same time, it was a little easier because there was less people, um, and we had a little bit more time. The cities and towns gave us a little bit more time to stop the race and conduct the event. But now we're back to the way it was. So, but it just seems like yesterday when we just did it. So, you know, it, it feels relatively comfortable right now where we're at. And I think we're, you know, we're ready to put on a, another good show. Well, we're talking to Dave McGilvery, famed Boston race director. Dave, tell us about the newly named uh, Dave McGilvery Finney Strong Foundation. What is that all about? Yeah. And how, well, who's it support? Well, interesting, Mike. Um, you know, you have a lot of professional athletes out there who, once their career ended, they started their own foundation and, and doing great work. But after their main focus is, is over and now they can focus on their foundation. Well, I started the DMSE foundation like 12 years ago. And mainly because I was raising money for so many different causes my whole life, you know, through all my events and personal fundraising, you know, you're in the hundreds of millions of dollars going all over the place, which again, that's what I'd like my legacy to be. Not how many miles I've run or races I've directed, but, maybe how many lives that we've helped save or chances we've given to people, you know, and just like you all and Babbitt and all those guys with CAF. I mean, that's the world I live in too, you know, and that's mm-hmm. where I get my most reward and joy. Um, but with the DMSE foundation, I started it, but I never really put much energy or time into it because I was so busy with the, with the mothership and putting on events um, but now things is, you know, since the pandemic and we, you know, unfortunately in 2020, every one of our 35 events went over the cliff and I, you know, I really thought this could be it. You know, I don't know how we were going to keep yeah. a pulse. And then I realized that, you know, our skill set was transferable and we could do other things. So we started doing outdoor, you know, sort of drive-in movies and renting our road race equipment to restaurants for outdoor dining and outdoor graduations and all this stuff. And so meanwhile, when all that was going on, I wasn't as busy. And so I said, you know, I'm going to relaunch my foundation. And I thought, you know, maybe we can rename it and make it a little bit more personal and have a different mission statement and um, all of that. So over the last three, four, five months. That's what I've been busy doing in addition to bringing back all our events. And, um, you know, we're we're about to quote unquote launch it. Um, and, and, and the whole idea is, is, you know, just to, um, give, you know, motivate kids primarily, 
through mm-hmm. education, through literacy, and through doing acts of kindness. And if you read in the back of my dream big book, well, all three children's books, um, you'll see the um, the dream big marathon challenge. And what that is, is the concept of the three pillars of life, at least the way I look at it, is um, education, it's health and fitness, and it's philanthropy. And so that's what I want to drive, um, basically, with kids is the whole idea of the children's books and inspiring them to read and then do something about it. Health and fitness, um, you know, obviously giving kids a chance to to participate in sport. And then the whole concept of giving back, philanthropy, acts of kindness. And so that's what the foundation's um, mission is. Um, I'm also helping um, kids with um, Sarah Reinstein's uh, husband, Brooke, um, help stop this concept of running as a right, where we're getting, we're buying um, blades for kids who have prosthetics. So it's one thing to have a prosthetic. It's another thing to have a blade to put on the prosthetic so you can now run. And so that, I love that concept that now not only did they get a chance to get a new leg with the prosthetic, but now we're giving them another chance to be able to run by giving them the blade. So um, we're, we're doing, I've already bought a bunch of blades for kids and stuff. And, and it just, makes, it's just, it's a really good feeling. And it's giving, it's going back to my, where this all started for me. It's like I said to my parents, I said, can you, can you give me one thing? And what's that? A chance. Cause that's all we are. Isn't that all we ever want in life? All of us. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. Dave, when it comes to your work, you know, you are, in my mind, one of the best event directors in the world. And, you know, with your accomplishment and success in that arena, what what are you most proud of when it comes to you being being a manager of events? What are you most proud of in the work world on your side of the business? Well, when I, Mike, when I used to be asked what I did for a living, I used to mumble... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a race director. <laughs> They're like, what? I'm a race director. And people are like, wait a minute. Your brother works for the Carroll Center for the Blind, helping the blind. Your other brother's a CPA and your sister's a social worker. The, your, your other sister's a nurse and you're a race director? Like, what the heck is that? <laughs> Chalk mark in the road, yell go, you know, kind of a thing. And, you know, I said, well, yeah, I, I guess that's what I do. And But the reality is, you know, when I started my business, DMSE Sports, back in the 80s, people say, you really think you can earn a living putting on road races? I said, I'm not just putting on road races. They were, what are you doing? I said, I'm helping to raise the level of self-confidence and self-esteem of tens of thousands of people in this country. I go, what? I said, no, that's what this does. You know, and when people say to me, what's the toughest part about running in a marathon? Well, the toughest part is signing the application. You know, having the guts to make that commitment. Then like my grandfather said, you got to earn the right to do it. You got to do the work. Then you toe the line, you answer the gun, you run the course, you cross the finish line, you get a medal and then magic happens. You go home feeling good about yourself. And there's nothing more powerful in this planet to feel than to feel good about yourself because that's the very foundation by which we accomplish everything in our lives. So in my business, I feel like I'm giving tens of thousands of people that opportunity to feel good about themselves because everything takes off from there. I'm not teaching them how to play the piano or teaching them how to cook or teaching them how to be a good parent. But once they cross that finish line and get that medal and drive home feeling good, the rest of the day is going to be a good day, right? And they're going to do good things because they feel good about themselves. That's what I do. You're right. And those good days, they morph into good weeks and good months and good years. So that's, Dave, I've got to bring up a memory. Salem, Massachusetts, the Saucony sales meeting was there. 
the day before the sales meeting started, I think we started on Sunday, it was a Saturday, you had the Salem 10K. And I went out for a run from the hotel and I look up the street, I don't know if you remember this, and there you are with white lime, what was that, gypsum lime, and you're, you're, you're lining the course for this 10K and it was about 95 degrees and I'm looking and I run up, I go, Dave, how you doing? Hey, Mike. And you're just out there with lime all over the place and I'm thinking, <laughs> who would want to do this? I'd rather run the race than be a race director. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. You, that, well, that's, that's what, what you did. Yeah. Well, you know, I have a button in my office that says, my job secure, no one else wants it, right? And <laughs> yeah, back in those days, there weren't many, you know, there weren't event management companies. There weren't wasn't a big bucket of resources. You, you were a jack of all trades. You had to do it all. Even in the early years with Boston in, in the in the, in the 80s, I mean, I was literally out stenciling the mile markers on the course the day before the race. I put the stencil in the back of my car, I get a whole bunch of aerosol white paint, and I drive down the course and I know where the miles are and I'm spray painting and put the, you know, back and keep going. That's what we did back then. Um, yeah, now yeah. it's a little different yeah, for sure, yeah. but whatever it took, you did. And I'm, I've always felt that I'm not above doing whatever it takes to get the job done. You know, if it's hauling barricades or moving road cones or painting mile markers or, or picking up trash, you know, it's got to get done and you do it. And, yeah. you know, I, I've always felt that as, a, as an event director and the person ultimately responsible, you should always be the first one to show up and the last one to leave, you know, and just make sure that everything is done the way it should be done. Dave, what can our sport, what can the sport of running be better at, do better at right now? What, what do you see in the future um, of, the, of the sport? You know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, there's, there's so much going on, obviously. Um, you know, one thing I've always felt, and, and, and it's no one to blame, it's just the way it, the way it is, is I, I felt that, you know, at least way back when, it was very fragmented. Not that we didn't support one another, but we did our own thing. Right. And, right. and that's still somewhat the case. You know, everyone's sort of a little bit, um, you know, in a, in a sort of on an island of their own, you know, and um, and like in a silo, you know, they do their own thing that, you know, some accept hand cycles in their race. Others don't. Some do wheelchairs. Others don't. Some offer prize money. Others don't. Some have bigger, large events. Others are smaller. You know, everything's so different depending on, you know, the goals, the objectives, the municipality within which you conduct the events, the the course, the distance, the, you know, all of that. Right. And so it's hard to be aligned with everything. And sometimes I think we give mixed messages to our customers because you go to one race and this is this set of rules. Or you go to another race and it's a different <laughs> set of rules. It's like, uh, which is it guys? You know? So one thing for me, as far as what we can do better is maybe collaborate a little bit more. I'm, I'm not saying I have the answer to how that's done, but, but I think organizations like Running USA and Road, Road Runners Club of America and even USA TNF, you know, attempt, attempt to do that. And I think the more we do of that, you know, not, not that every, everything has to be exactly the same, but it's just we, we, can, learn, we can learn more from, from each other. Certainly that's, that's one thing that I think, at least from an operational perspective, there's so many other pieces, you know, whether it's, you know, doping control, whether it's the footwear these days, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, insurance, there's so many different layers here that, um, and again, road races are big, you know, a lot of them are big business now, you know, dealing with millions of dollars in sponsorship, corporate America to media from all over the world to, you know, the whole aspect of health and fitness and medical and then technology is off the charts. I mean, the three things that have changed the most in this industry since I started is technology, security, and medical, you know, and those are three areas I have virtually nothing to do with, you know, I'm still like water stations, make sure they go in the right direction. Don't go off the course. Don't run out of water. Time and score the thing, give them their banana and send them on their way. I mean, that's sort of, 
that's that's you know you, you, those are the those are the the main ingredients that at the end of the day we don't want to lose sight of. Right, right, Dave. What advice would you give to the runners out there, and even all the age group triathletes? We've been going through obviously a tough two and a half years, and hopefully we're we're coming out of it, and we'll be able to go to events. But what advice would you give to them to so they keep their keep a positive attitude and keep moving forward? Yeah, well, I, again, I think it's perspective in terms of why you're doing this to begin with, right? I mean, during the entire pandemic, you you could still go out and ride your bike and run. I mean, yeah, that didn't yeah. stop. If you were a basketball player or a football player or, you know, whatever, then, you know, if you worked out in a health club, those all get shut down. But for us, we are very fortunate that our sport, our passion was not stripped from us. Yeah, the competitive side of it, participating in a in-person competitive event, took a backseat. I never, I never said that um, we lost business. We just lost permission to conduct it for a short period of time, and 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 now it's back, right? And mm-hmm. you know, I and again, every everything is perspective. And I don't think any of us in the running industry or triathlon industry should should have felt, you know, uh, like we're getting truly dinged. You know, we're the lucky ones that that could carry on if we're truly passionate about what we're doing while others were, were struggling, but what's great now. And, you know, we hate the word, but we pivoted. Right. And so a lot of races, they come back in late 2020, early 2021, and then in full scale in in late 21, where we were doing all this different types of, you know, spreading things out. And, 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 you know, we learned a lot from that too. Um, We, you know, in a lot of those races, there were no, you know, goodie bags. There were no award ceremonies. There were no, you know, post-race parties. Um, in some cases, there were no medals or T-shirts. It's just come run and grab your bottle of water, put your mask back on and go home. That was OK. You know, that was OK for that time. Now, coming full bore back, is that still OK? I, I doubt it. <laughs> you know, people want all the accoutrements and all that other stuff, but it, it, it just, there was, there was something, I don't know. There was something kind of refreshing about, you know, during the pandemic running in that way and, and, and shaving away all the ancillary stuff. And it all came down just to the fact that people just wanted to get out there and run and, and race. And I, I like that. I, I really like running in those races in the late two, two twenties and stuff. And, um, anyways, yeah. So th- yeah. there was a learning curve for all of it for all of us. For all of us. So, Dave, the last question on find your finish line. I call it tri table racing. It comes out of the Baja One Thousand desert racing with trophy trucks and cars down there. I've got friends that race that all the time, and it's an amazing event. Well, after the event, the drivers and the, they they get together and they sit around the table and they reminisce about the event. And we've done that so many times. So, I call it tri table racing. Reminisce with us. Pick any event you've ever done, whatever it is, a moment in the event, just whatever comes to your mind. Reminisce with us and do a little tri table racing with us. Well, um, I mean, there are high points and low points, and sometimes the most memorable uh, are the low points. Um, but <laughs> one, one point, finding your finish line, an interesting one. I, when I was doing the World Marathon Challenge, we were in uh, Cartagena in uh, Colombia in South America, mm-hmm. and, and we, were, we were running in the old city, and then we had to go out into the newer part of the city and then come back. Well, like 90% of us got lost. And, you know, I didn't have a watch on at the time because I just, I wasn't, I wasn't wearing a GPS watch. So I had no idea how far I had run. And I was like yelling at people saying, how far am I? Where am I? Where am I? And then I, I couldn't find the finish line. So every time you say, find your finish line, I, rem- I think of that event saying, I, could, I, I never found it. Like, I think I found it, but I wasn't sure. Anyways, um, but I have so many, 
you know, stories in the running industry, as you can imagine, mm. you know, from things that happen in Boston, the things that happen in some of my triathlons to things that ha- just so many. Um, but one that that sort of jumps out is I was doing the Goodwill Games triathlon in Manhattan. And um, what year what year was that? So that was 1990. It was okay, and Greg Welch was in the race, and uh, Mecca, and just you know, all, all, just you know, the best athletes in the world were there mm-hmm. on live television, Turner Sports, and so the swim was in the Hudson River by the World Trade Center, and uh, and so it was funny because I we walk up to the water and I'm looking in the water, it looks it looked nasty, <laughs> and I I say to Welchy, what. Well, well, gee, he goes, you go, what? He goes, I said, what do you think? He goes, uh, where are I? Just get rid of that stuff over there. I said, all right, well, sweep that out of the way so no one sees it. He said, we'll be fine. I've sh-, he says, I, I swam in worse. I said, all right, we dumped everyone in the Hudson River. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know, is this, is this really going to work? And then they come out of the water and they jump on their bikes and they're biking up FDR Drive towards uh, Central Park going through Times Square, the whole bit. And then, um, so I get in the car and we're driving up to, to go to Central Park to s- see the run and the finish. And I got in a car accident. So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to make it there in time. But we finally got there. And as I got there, so the day before we had a technical meeting and I said to all the athletes, the 10K is three laps around the lower part of Central Park, but that's not a 10K. So I had to add a splinter loop and out and back. Okay, so I said, when you get off your bike, you're going to go out a little bit and back and then do the three loops. Okay, well, I get to Central Park and they miss the out and back and they're they're going in the wrong direction. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Two years of planning and these guys (laughs) didn't do the splinter loop and they're going they're going counterclockwise. They're supposed to be going clockwise. This thing is a bloody mess. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, so I commandeered a motorcycle and I went around and I told every single athlete in the race, I said, when you get back to the finish line, you've got to keep going and add that splinter loop at the end instead of doing it at the beginning. And they all did it except three athletes. And the three athletes were at the time in fourth, fifth and sixth. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be toast. And what happened was, is that a park ranger thought these road cones, that was the turnaround, were in the wrong place. And she moved them all. And that's why they never saw the turnaround. And shame uh, on me for making the mistake of not putting a, a real bona fide, you know, key person at that turn. It was just this person who really didn't know the course. And the whole thing was, you know, basically a disaster. So, what was the first thing I did? The first thing I did was I hid behind, <laughs> I hid behind a tree. <laughs> and, and my wife at the time caught me. She tapped me on the shoulder. She says, what are you doing? I said, what's it look like I'm doing? I'm hiding behind this tree. She said, why? I said, I'm trying to gain my composure. I said, I have to face the international media in the next 20 minutes and explain what happened here. And I said, I got to figure out what to say. And so, you know, I did, and I took the hit and I said, guilty as judge, my fault, the whole bit. But, you know, and then Turner ended up dumping in more money, like another hundred grand to pay off the fourth, fifth and sixth guy who dropped out because they missed the out and back on the back end. So everything was even, but um, the point being in all this two years of, planning, live television, (laughs) you know, thinking I got this thing nailed. I got him in the water. I got him on the bike. And I said, the easiest thing is to run three loops around Central Park. We got this. We got this. And it it was just a disaster. Right. And so even the most experienced (laughs) event director in the world, you know, they make bumper stickers, stuff happens. And um, I'll never, I'll never, I'll never forget that moment, you know, but I hid behind a tree. Well, you're 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 a strong stronger soul than most because I don't know how many event directors out there today would keep doing what they're doing, Dave. After that <laughs> happened to them, so thank goodness, thank goodness, your resolve is there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just shows you how vulnerable we are, Mike. 
this isn't this isn't a beach volleyball <laughs> tournament, you know, where it's all right there where I you know. can see it. You know, triathlons. I mean, I did the Cape Cod Endurance yeah, and Ironman yeah. Distance one. That was the first Ironman Distance triathlon in the world. Other after after well, at the time after Oahu, you know, Oahu, and, yeah. and I did it in 1980, 1981, and um, stuff like that. And I, I say to myself, my God, you know how many things can go wrong here? Like you got people spread out over a hundred miles. This is nuts, you know. But that's what we do. I wouldn't change a well, thing. Well, you kept wanting you kept wanting to do it, which was uh, fortunate for us. Dave McGilvery, our sport is uh, very fortunate to have you in it and to have your kindness and your uh, always outlook on life and the hope that you give other people to be able to keep moving forward. So thank you very much for that. I know you're a busy guy. Good luck running your 50th. Good luck putting on the race and good luck running your 50th uh, in April at the Boston Marathon, Dave. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And someday I want you to call my name one more time. Okay. Uh, let, let's, let's make a promise to each other. We'll do that. <laughs> okay. We'll do that. Thank you again, Dave McGilvery, and thank you again to Activize, the official topical pain relief partner of Ironman. Uh, make sure you get it on Amazon, at Walmart, at Ironman.com. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to it if you would. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or go to my website, MikeRiley.net. Thank you again, everybody, for listening. Remember, you're the cause of your own experiences. If you keep those positive, they will get you to your next finish line. Take care, everyone. Aloha.